how do you successfully create a new market category in B2B? This is the question that many founders ask themselves, but it's a very niche topic and there's just not a lot of content out there from people who've truly taken a shot at creating a new market category. So that's why we've created this show. So at G2, we have over 2,100 different software categories now. As I mentioned, when we started 10 years ago, we only had one, which was CRM software. What we're doing at Timescale is we're redefining the database category. Montecarlo is pioneering a category called data observability. The subcategory interview intelligence is new. We are the leader. There's a lot of category creators that are no longer with us. Uh, they're in the, the great category graveyard somewhere. In each episode, we'll learn the backstory behind the B2B founders' category creation efforts. We'll learn what worked, what didn't, and tactical insights for how you can build a winning category strategy. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now, let's jump in to today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Organ. Now, Mark, for those who don't know, is not just a serial entrepreneur. He's a serial category creator. He's created new market categories that have generated billions of dollars in market value, which is not something that many founders can say. Now, Mark, I first heard of you about eight years ago when you gave a talk at HustleCon, which was hilarious, entertaining, and I learned a lot, and I've been a fan ever since. So I'm truly honored to have you here, and I really look forward to this discussion. So thank you so much for joining. That's my pleasure. Can't wait. Now, to begin here, could you just start off with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background and all of the work you've done around creating categories? Sure. Yeah. So who I am, a VC that I worked with said, you know, in people's 20s is when they're really formed in terms of kind of who they are work-wise. So, you know, in my 20s, I really did a couple different things. One was science. So I was a neuroscientist and a PhD candidate there. And, uh, and from there, I went to Bain to do what I think is actually more science, um, basically diagnosing sick companies and trying to figure out how to make them, make them better. So that's one part of kind of my background or upbringing. And the other one is a street fighting entrepreneur. I've been building companies since I was a teenager. And uh, at first kind of just, you know, street fighting companies, like painting companies and custom software companies. But then, you know, with the advent of the internet, I got really excited about building companies that could scale uh, like crazy. So that's kind of my formative background. While I was at Bain is where me and my co-founders conceived of the idea for Eloqua, which is a marketing automation software company, and really one of the, the category creator, I would say, of, you know, in that space. And um, Eloqua is a pretty, pretty interesting you know, history. It's a bootstrapped company, didn't raise uh, any significant money for, for quite a while. And it actually started off by focusing on the needs of salespeople, actually, is pretty interesting. Where what we discovered when I was uh, working at Bain was that the best way to make salespeople uh, more successful was to actually get them better quality leads. So founded uh, Eloqua, that ended up doing uh, quite well and had a public offering and and, um, and got sold to Oracle. And after a, a few years of hiatus, I founded Influitive, which came from my ideas that uh, the pain actually they experienced at, at, uh, at Eloqua, which is a advocate community and really the category creator there around uh, customer marketing in 2010. And I exited that in 2019. It's still a going concern. It's a profitable company. It's doing well. 
and I'm chairman of the board there. And now I'm focused on coaching category creating CEOs. It's really my passion is around category creation. It's very exciting for me that there's so much buzz around it now. And so I'm very interested in working with founders and uh, CEOs of uh, people who really want to build not just a great company, but build a whole ecosystem and truly change the world. And, um, you know, that's my obsession today. Amazing. I love it. Now to zoom in on Eloqua a little bit here. So you achieved what I think every founder dreams of. Yeah. Taking a company public, that's the dream. Selling it for, I believe it was at least reported online, like 870 million. So we can round up and say, you know, close to a billion dollar exit. That's the dream, right? For every founder. But I'd love to go back and let's talk about the pain that you went through to pull that off. And, and let's talk about those early days. And let's talk about some of those near-death experiences that you face. Because I, I believe, if I remember correctly from that talk eight years ago, there were a number of times where it maybe felt very difficult and maybe didn't seem like the company was going to make it. So tell us about some of those early days and some of that early pain. Yeah, absolutely. This could be a long interview. Um, it was definitely tough sledding. I mean, we almost went bankrupt four times, once like literally within days of kicking the bucket. You know, me and my co-founders, we put every dollar we had and then some into the company. So, you know, we were in our early 20s. Uh, we didn't really know very much at all about how to build a company. As I mentioned, we were bootstrapped um, sort of. We raised $166,000. So we raised that in angel money. Actually, the, the tech wreck happened right in the middle of my fundraising round in <laughs> in 2000. So, and because we were young and inexperienced, it was uh, quite difficult for us to uh, raise any money. So we had to figure out how to be profitable pretty quick or we were going to die. And one thing I am grateful for, and I'm lucky, is that I did have some mentors. And I guess today you would call them coaches. Back then, there was no such thing really as a coach for you know, founders. But I was lucky to have some great advice, including um, one advisor who uh, built a billion-dollar company himself and, and also uh, didn't like to raise money. His name is Bill Tatum, built a company called Jana Systems, sold that to Siebel for $1.6 billion back in the day. And uh, he gave me some great advice on how to get my company profitable. And I took that advice and did other things as well that I think you guys would find pretty interesting on the show. But basically the way that we got the company profitable, the main way was to hyper narrow the focus so that we were really only focused on, in this case, our application software companies is where we found a great fit. We raised our prices. We um, servicized the business. So we started to think of the company more as a services company as opposed to a software company, even though we're very much we're a software company. But to really understand the customer pain and to solve it, you know, we started charging for all the different services that we did, including even needs analysis that normally you know companies do for free. And so that was one thing that we did. Another thing that that we did that was uh, really successful is we we actually went after one of our biggest competitors. And a company that had raised uh, almost $50 million, which was an unbelievable sum back then, right? That would probably be raising like $150 million today. And uh, basically focused the entire company on winning some of their accounts because uh, they had you know, the biggest bottleneck that we had in our business was in educating the customer. And this is typically a problem for category creators, right? Is that you're building something new. So... The market doesn't know exactly what you are yet. And so uh, having pre-educated customers and showing how we were a better fit for uh, for their needs, uh, especially long-term needs, at a better price point, 
was a real winner. So that's the second way we got profitable. Third way, which is actually pretty hilarious. At the time, there was a big fad among bigger companies called Six Sigma that you might have heard of. The idea of Six Sigma is to reduce the variance that you have in your business because customers hate variance. It was a fad at the time. I'm not even sure anyone even does it anymore, but it was a big deal. And there were a bunch of companies, including General Electric and Motorola, a few others that were really into it to the point where they even had a separate budget around Six Sigma. And so we figured out how to sell into that budget. And we called ourselves like the Six Sigma Marketing, uh, which um, <laughs> I was taking some creative license on that. But we were able to sell into a few customers into that budget. So those are three things that we did in order to get profitable. But yeah, I mean, along the way, it was very scary. I mean, there was one time where one way that we got out of it, we raised a couple hundred thousand dollars from our employees, but especially the parents, <laughs> the family members of employees by selling our stock super cheap. You know, our board was kind of willing to, they thought we were going to kick the bucket. So why not? And uh, as a result of that, there are a lot of millionaires today coming out of Eloqua, including some junior employees that bought a few shares uh, that then became actually quite valuable. Um, so another way that we sort of stayed alive, I could tell you a lot more stories, but there's something, maybe some actionable takeaways there. Nice. Yeah, I love it. And I, I think our audience loves those types of stories because you, you, know, you read the big news, right, about a company getting acquired, a founder having a big exit, but... I think what doesn't get enough attention is the pain that they have to go through to reach that exit. So appreciate you sharing those stories. Now, I'd love to switch gears here and just dive deeper into the category component here of Eloqua. So was it demand generation? Was it marketing automation? Like at what point did you say, okay, here's our category and this is the category that we're going to create and this is the category that we're going to play in? Or what was that process like when it came to determining that category? Yeah, that's a great question. And one thing that's interesting is even with all the twists and turns of the company and all the things we had to do to survive, the core thesis of the company never changed. It was still the same point of, I guess, what, uh, you know, the play bigger guys might call your point of view or what I just call the, the theory of victory. And that is that a measurable and repeatable process for generating demand is a winner. I mean, that is what salespeople need in order to be successful. And in software companies, really most companies don't do well without sales reps doing well. So the interesting thing about Eloqua is that it's a marketing software company, but the focus was the results were based on sales productivity. And I think that's why the company actually did well and cut through a lot of noise and what the category was all about. Like the category was so different from really anything else that was going on in marketing because it was laser focused on the needs of salespeople. And that came out of the fundamental research that me and my co-founders, you know, did. We were at Bain, the experiences that we had, it came directly out of there. So that was the original thesis of the company. It never changed. And in fact, the original product at Eloqua was not a marketing product. It was actually a chat. So this was, uh, think about, um, you know, something like Intercom today. Mm -hmm. um, that's what the original, in fact, uh, it doesn't look that different from modern chat products. And it was because it was trying to solve that problem, which is how do we make sales reps more productive using the internet? And so we're like, okay, why don't we get them leads 
from the internet, like people who are surfing around and like get and and uh, and get those two salespeople. Our first customer was a uh, uh, today would be Cushman and Wakefield, so a big commercial real estate company it was actually our first client, first customer, and their sales reps were literally chatting with people about properties on the internet. And as you might guess, that wasn't a hit. <laughs> commercial sales, commercial real estate sales reps making four hundred grand a year, better things to do than chat with random people on the internet. Um, <laughs> but uh, but then what did work was when we added an email engine on top of it in order to drive more people to chat, <laughs> which still was not the thing. But when we had the email engine and what that did was it it provided a prioritized list of people for sales reps to follow up with. And that was the hit. That was actually the winning solution. So that's kind of what the MVP was. And then what the category was built around was just my... I guess, investigation and going out and talking to top sales reps and marketers and noticing that there was a subset and not a large subset, like a small subset of marketers that were really keen on this idea. And they didn't even call themselves marketers. It was almost like a pejorative. Many of these guys had an engineering background and they were often tapped by top management to figure this internet thing out. This internet thing is going to be big. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta figure out how to make money from it. <laughs> uh, so they would tap like you know one of their top people and actually move them into the marketing department as almost the special you know special kind of person to go and figure this thing out and and how to generate demand in what was then a demand poor environment. So 2001, especially post September 11th, was a demand poor environment, if you recall. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of carnage out there and uh, companies needed to figure out how to sell and market again. <laughs> this wasn't like the go-go 90s, right? We had to generate demand. And so these people call themselves demand generation. And you'd go to their offices or cubicles and you would see flow charts and you would see equations, you would see funnels, uh, you would see benchmarking data. You wouldn't see you know, what the this year's hot Pantone color was <laughs> or ideas for taglines, you would see this kind of hardcore stuff. And again, this was a subset. Like this is, you know, 4% of marketers. This is not a majority, but they were special. And when they heard our ideas, they went bananas. They said, this is what I believe in. Like this is, where have you been all my life? And that's really what the category was built around, was around these special people who really saw the world differently from everyone else in their category. And it's actually from this that my theory of, of how category creation uh, happens, this is really where it came from, is that categories are built around special people that have needs and attitudes that are different from everyone else. And if you are lucky and smart, then these people that today are a subset of kind of some cases kind of weird freaks but they end up becoming the dominant segment because of trends in society trends in technology that one day they actually become the majority which of course has happened where today probably more than half of cmos have a background in demand gen today it's really high Demand gen, you know, mid-level demand gen people have gone from a salary of 60K to now well over 200K, even for relatively junior people who are good at their job. 
So that's really the original category was demand gen automation because demand generation automation doesn't sound that great. So demand gen automation was the original category name. It's a little clumsy, but it really worked. You know, for the people that were a great fit for us, they were drawn to our ideas like a moth to a flame. That was helped a lot by a early relationship that we built with a analyst firm named Sirius Decisions. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're now, I believe, part of Gartner. But uh, at the time when we formed a relationship with them, we were one of the first tech companies to do so. They were four people and a dog over top of a drugstore in Danbury, Connecticut. And the reason why I actually took a trip out there, and I remember it was just really hard to get there. I had to fly to Hartford, I had to drive to Danbury. And, you know, back then there wasn't a, there was no automatic maps on the, there's no, on the phone, like, to get there. Um, but the reason why I went out there was that a lot of our best fit prospects and customers loved their work. So they were an early analyst firm studying innovation in sales and marketing process and tech. In fact, they were founded after we were at, at Aliqua. But our these people really loved the ideas. And so we wanted to go and talk. And then, so we were actually one of the first software companies, tech companies to ever form a relationship with them. Uh, we paid them 17000 a year, which was a king's ransom back then. That same deal today would be the easily 150000 or 200k a year. But I think that kind of speaks to a little bit of how the category creation process actually happens. Like it's around people with special ideas and attitudes. And, you know, by serving them well, you can end up being not in a small category, but actually end up in, in a big category. And I've read Crossing the Chasm a, a few times now, and I know they talk a lot about, you know, the innovators and, and the visionaries. So is that what you're talking about here? Is that your narrow group that you're trying to focus on? Is that the innovators and visionaries and early adopters? Or what does that group or segment look like? Yes, yeah, so um, I mean, I was very influenced by Crossing the Chasm, as probably a lot of people in the space are. And there's there's a lot of wisdom in it, particularly the idea that early adopters do reference other early adopters, but then mainstream don't reference early adopters. So I, I think that's an important idea. I think this goes a step further, right? So I think that Crossing the Chasm really speaks about technology adoption. It's all about the technology adoption curve, right? That's what Crossing the Chasm is all about. And my focus has not been on adopting technology. My focus is on understanding a group of special people who are going to become powerful and numerous in the future because of underlying changes that are happening in society and technology. So I think that's a little different. You can serve those people. You don't necessarily have to serve them with technology, although it's a good idea <laughs> because tech scales really well and it tends to be really effective at solving their problem. So it's really, for me, as whereas crossing the chasm is about technology diffusion, mm -hmm. my ideas are around people diffusion, ideas diffusion. And so I think that's a fundamental difference, although there's for sure they are related because we serve these people with technology, but also other things, right? We serve, for example, with demand gen automators, we serve them with a community and with services and with partnerships and with content, you know, with a book. 
right? They need all kinds of things in order to be successful in their job and in order for them to become more powerful in our organizations. And how do they get more powerful? They get more powerful by driving results, right? They drive results for their companies. And as a result, they drive results for themselves. So I don't know if you get that nuance and kind of the difference between sort of technology diffusion and sort of specialized people diffusion or ideas diffusion. Yeah. Well, how you explained it definitely resonates and that definitely makes a lot of sense. Now, how do you go about finding these people? So when you're working with you know, the, the companies that you consult for or you're a coach for, how do you help them find this segment of the population who will buy into their point of view and, and you know, believe the things that they believe? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of my clients, when I start working with them, not all of them, but a lot of them, you know, they're already at one or 2 million ARR. So they already have some early customers. And for them, it's really a matter of finding the special ones and the ones that really have a different idea and attitude and different ideas from the rest. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, I have worked with some, not always as a paid coach, but just sort of to help out with people who are much earlier that actually don't have any revenue yet. And the way I counsel them is to get out there and meet people and think of yourself like an anthropologist, because that's really what this method is all about, right? This method is fundamentally centered on people with different ideas from the rest. And that's what anthropologists, that's what they study, you know, whether they go out in the, into the bush and find, you know, a new tribe or or even anthropologists who are close to home and identify, you know, groups of people that think very differently about things than everyone else. I just read something the other day about, you know, anthropologists who study people who are into like polyamory, right? People who don't believe in having one partner for their whole life. And that those people are interesting, right? They think very differently about things than 90, whatever X percent of the population. And, you know, someday somebody will actually make a lot of money by serving those people. You know, uh, not that I know a lot about it, but, you know, because they think differently. So they have different needs, right? They need different kinds of dating apps. They need uh, different kinds of, I don't know what, one day someone will market a vodka to them and do very well. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's the thing is to study people in an area that you find interesting, right? So I often, so what I counsel uh, people, like young people, entrepreneurs who are looking for an idea, it's like, what? what's the technology that you're excited about? What are the trends in society that you think are real, right? Like today, for example, like ESG is a big trend, right? Uh, where you've got, you know, investors that are interested in things other than financial performance, They're interested in environmental and social and governance types of stuff. That's a huge trend. You know, is it a fad? Is it a trend? I don't know. But if you think it's a trend, then that's really interesting. There are some people that are going to do really well based on that trend. Uh, there's also lots of technology trends that are very exciting today, from robotics to you know uh, large language model AI to drones, like lots of stuff out there, right? So what I counsel is like find a couple trends that you think are really exciting, and then study people that are leveraging these in some way. Okay, like for example, drones. You know, there right now, if you go on LinkedIn, there's something like a couple thousand uh, drone fleet managers out there. Not a lot, but it's pretty interesting. And I would bet that in 10 years, there's going to be a hundred times as many drone fleet managers because the value that drones can offer for, you know, companies that are doing, especially anything in commodity extraction is massive. 
right? And as the cost of drones go down, then the size of these fleets go up. And as the size of these fleets go up, someone's got to manage this stuff, right? <laughs> so you can bet that, you know, you can bet that there's going to be a mega trend there. And so let's say you're excited about drones and ESG. I'm just making this up for the first time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's at the nexus of drones and ESG? But there probably is, right? So there's probably like, so of the 2,000 drone managers, there's like a dozen of them that really care about, you know, minimizing waste, minimizing fuel use, maximizing privacy. I'm just making this up right now, right? But there's 12 of them out of these 2,000, right? You can potentially build a big business on that. Again, if these trends persist. So if drones really do become a huge thing and the costs massively go down, technology goes up in performance, ESG becomes a big thing. Well, if you focus on those 12 people, one day those 12 could be 120,000 people. And you might end up with you know, owning the biggest category, the most exciting category in the space. Very difficult for alternatives. I mean, you'll have a lot of alternatives. You'll have a lot of competitors that are after you. But as the category creator, you'll probably end up with a pretty decent business. So that's my algorithm, actually, of, of how I go about you know category creation. In my case, I have not had to go searching very far because I just find my next category with the pain that I experienced in the previous one. <laughs> so, you know, at Eloqua, what I noticed was that the best customers, the prospects that moved fastest through the funnel were the ones that came out of what today we would call an advocate channel. They came out of referrals. They looked at case studies on the website. They needed a reference in order to close. And these were high quality customers. Great. Well, let's get way more of those. Well, it turns out that was a hard problem. It turns out that that was really difficult to mobilize your current customers in order to make new customers. And so it just became really easy what my next business was. And it turns out that there was a small group of what I lovingly call freaks, where today those are customer marketers. But back then there was not a lot of them. And they were mostly weirdos uh, that did customer marketing. And uh, those are the people who were in charge of generating more referrals, case studies, you know, videos, references, uh, five-star reviews, that sort of thing. And so the next business was very simple. It's like, we're going to serve these people. We're going to serve these customer marketers with a tool that is actually quite different from anything else that's out there, but it actually serves their needs better than anything else. And that was included. And so, and then, then give them a community, give them a book, give them a platform. And now customer marketing is a real thing. There are, you know, well, like in the tens of thousands of customer marketers today. Uh, but when I started, there was just a handful. That reminds me a bit of the Gainsight story and, and what they did to create the customer success category, where Nick Mehta says there, they were looking and they saw that more and more people had the job title of customer success manager, but there were no purpose-built tools to really serve them. So they said, okay, we're going to serve you. Yeah, we're going to create content that educates you. We're going to create content that entertains you. Like when you know, Nick Meta did his rap at one of their conferences, yeah. which you know, for me and you know, for others who are in customer success, the words didn't make any sense. But if you're in customer success, if you're you know one of those underserved heroes, you loved it because it was a rap, a hip hop you know, tape about what you do every day. So that makes a lot of sense. And, and that really resonates a lot. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Nick, Nick and I are very much on the same page, and you know, we we really built our businesses together at almost the same time. So yeah, we have a lot of very similar ideas, and and I think like mine, it's very very focused on the on the people and the and the job title. What's interesting now, you know, you did ask the question about marketing automation versus demand gen automation, and that is the category expansion, and that's something that he's doing now, right? He's acquired a couple of companies. One, actually, a direct competitor of Influitive, interestingly, which is inside it. That's a community play. And then also something in the product automation space. And so he's got to sort of put that into a bigger category, which I'm not sure is successful yet. It doesn't feel coherent yet to me. But that's, you know, one place in, in the journey. At some point, you need to expand the category. So at HubSpot, they expanded inbound marketing into growth marketing, and I think pretty successfully. I think that that's working quite well. At at Eloqua, we started demand and automation, and at some point we took a bold bet, you know, and called it marketing automation to say, well, you know, your email and your website and your automation flows should be the core of all of everything that you do. It's not just about acquiring new customers. And I do think that was successful as well. And you could tell because the other players in the space copied it, right? Marketo came as a fast follower in 2006 and basically copied and entered the category. And unabashedly, right? If you talk to Phil Fernandez, like, yeah, we did create a category. We just, we thought that uh, there was lots of room in, in uh, marketing automation and there was. And and so they were a category entrant in the way that they went about it, which was masterful. They did it very well, was to compete on user experience. And I thought to you one thing that uh, I think one of the things I coach my clients on is to think about what is the differentiation of your category? Like how is your category different from other categories? Where does your category draw its ideas from? But then how are you different inside your category? So for example, Eloqua really was the Cadillac of marketing automation. And that was very deliberate, um, very deliberate. This is, we are going to capture the high end of the market. That is where, you know, our heritage was, was being a cash flow positive company. And that's where the catch is. <laughs> the cash is up there. They have lots and lots of money to spend to be in the Cadillac or the BMW of the space. And to this day, you know, the biggest companies out there with the most sophisticated needs around marketing automation still use Aliqua today called Oracle Marketing Cloud. Not the biggest in the space, right? There are others that are bigger. You know, just as Toyota is is larger than Rolls-Royce, but Rolls-Royce does well in, in its class and Toyota does well in its class. You know, the way that a Marketo chose to compete was very smart. So I think people have to think about that. Yeah, think about, okay, what, how is this category different? And then within my category, what will we never be willing to seed? C-E-D-E. What are we never willing to seed? What if any competitors, if they're better than us, are we totally screwed? <laughs> so at Eloqua, that was the high end of the market. We never were willing to give that up. At Influitive, it was the advocate experience. So we will always, always, always have the best advocate experience. We will always prioritize that over everything else. Other competitors can do better at other things, but they will never have a better advocate experience than us. And why did we choose that? We chose that because, well, one, we thought it is strategically important. We think that if advocates love advocating, then they're going to do a lot more of it and they're going to generate value for companies who use the solution. But also, it's just kind of the way we're wired. We just love it, right? We love the idea of great user experience. And coming out of my experience at Eloqua, where 
I think we faltered because of a poor user experience. <laughs> you know, I really wanted to make sure that put this first and foremost in our strategy at uh, at Influido. Yeah, that's so useful to hear because I think a lot of founders, you know, obviously buy into the idea of creating a category. And I think when they do that, they accept the idea that you can't have a category of one. So they know that they are going to have to have competitors come in. And I think that's where you know most founders are just okay with that idea. They, they can say that out loud and that's fine. You know, we welcome competition, all of that kind of stuff. But when competition actually comes and when competition comes in hot with, you know, fuck you money from Tiger or Co2, I'm sure it's a little bit scary for these founders. And then they have to really battle out for the category. So I think that's a, a very helpful perspective in, in how to think about competition when they do enter into the category. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people do pay lip service to it. I, I mean, I know that the best way to make money as a category creator is to have competitors in your category. And the reason why is because it reduces the risk for buyers. You know, most of the potential cash in your category is tied up with people who are not willing to make a decision. And the reason why they're not willing to make a decision is because they're scared. They're nervous. They don't want to make a mistake. And so having a busy space is good, right? It means that it's less risk for the buyer because they're like, well, there's other people doing it. That's great. If the solution that I buy falters, I've got other players in there. Because there's competitors in there, there's analysts covering the space. There are lots of people who know how to use these solutions, right? So that's that's valuable. One of the biggest constraints that we had on our growth at Influitive was that we didn't have enough people who uh, were skilled to use these solutions. This is really a new breed of community manager, community marketer that's needed. And so, you know, by having others in the space, you have more people that are training more users and that reduces the risk for buyers. And that is what generates way more money than competing over two or three points of market share with alternatives. So I think competitors are actually essential and the wise category creator is actually welcoming them. At our conference at Advocamp, we had a competitor as our platinum sponsor. <laughs> um, we welcomed you know, several alternatives to us at the event. And it's because we're all in it together to make this category a reality. That said, nobody will ever have a better advocate experience than Influitive. Not that, not ever. And the day when that happens is the day when Influitive uh, dies, because that is what we determined was the way to win. So I think, yes, you can welcome competitors, but you better know what is most strategically important and nail that. Because otherwise, you're right, those competitors that have raised big money, and, and I saw that, like Marketo raised way more money than Aliqua did. And same with Influitive. We had alternatives that raised a lot of money. So you better figure out what's most important and make sure that you build the systems in your business so that you nail it. Because yeah, otherwise you will be an also ran and that does happen, right? There's a lot of category creators that are no longer with us. Uh, they're in the, the great category graveyard somewhere. <laughs> I love that. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. 
Now, Mark, today, maybe it's just my LinkedIn feed based on you know, who I follow, but it seems like category creation and category design is everywhere. And whenever you see people talking about category creation, there's always people chirping in the comments, you know, saying that it's really just a fancy way to describe positioning or that it's impossible and you know you can't pull it off. Nobody can really pull it off. There's very few true examples of category creators. What do you say to those critics or what are these critics of category creation getting wrong? Yeah, it's a good question. And there's some validity to it. Like, I mean, positioning is a big part of what category creation is all about. And, uh, you know, the reason Trout book on positioning, it was part of my foundation, my foundations in entrepreneurship. I mean, I read it as a teenager when I was building a painting company and <laughs> trying and built a, a very differentiated house painting company back when I was teenager. So positioning is really important. And I mentioned this previously, you know, we have to think about how is your category different from other categories? How are you different from pretty different from your category? So right there, you've got two levels of positioning. I think what the difference is that category creation has a whole lot more a bigger body of knowledge around it and more things that one has to do. So I think, you know, positioning to me is like Ava saying, we're number two, so we work hard. Okay. <laughs> um, and that's actually brilliant positioning. There's lots of people who buy Avis because they work hard. And there are people who buy Hertz because they're number one. And that's that's the way that they, they position. But that's really quite at the surface level where, you know, to go maybe into, I don't know why we're into rental cars here, but you know, there's a, a car, there's a rental car company called Silver Car that is fundamentally different. So yes, they rent cars, but they only rent Audis. And there's a whole process that goes along with renting that car. And they've done a lot of research. I said, who are the kind of people who do this, right? Who are the kind of people who are going to want to rent, you know, this kind of car? And they've built a whole company around those people and their interests and needs and attitudes. So that goes a lot deeper than just positioning, right? That goes a lot into market segmentation and into the mental models that these special people have and how to serve those mental models. Sometimes how to move the models a little bit, like how to adjust them because you need them to think a little bit differently. So I think that's a level of depth that you just don't find in positioning. But you can see why positioning is very important. And the reason why I love positioning so much, why I think it's so important, is that fundamentally it is about psychology. And that, I think, when we're creating categories, is the name of the game. We need to understand the way our prospects and customers think. We need to understand the different ways that people think. How do we segment the attitudes that people have? And then from there, say, well, which of these attitudes are going to prevail in the next few years? And they're going to prevail because of fundamental changes that are happening in the world. That is, I think, several levels of depth deeper than just positioning. But what it has in common with positioning is understanding of psychology, understanding of mental models, market segmentation, and differentiation. But not just random differentiation, differentiation for a very real purpose, because these are different people. They think differently. And so we create something that's different 
that's finally not always better, right? In many cases, it's worse. I mean, I think because I'm Canadian, and actually right now I am 10 minutes away from the Blackberry World Headquarters of Waterloo, Ontario. And Blackberry was a big thing way, way back in the day. I was a big Blackberry fan. I had one for 12 years. And then one day I switched to an iPhone like a lot of other people, but it took me a while. I think there was a brilliant exercise, not just in positioning, but in category creation around, you know, around the iPhone, which essentially was a handheld computer. But the fundamental improvement was that, you know, there's a lot more power in the computer and especially it allowed for apps, which was really the key differentiator. But I had really terrible battery to the point where the founder CEOs of BlackBerry said, this thing will never work. This is going to be an utter failure. And that's because they were looking in the wrong place, right? They were looking in their customer base, which at the time really valued battery life. And I, I was one of them, or I thought it was. You know, you could go more than a week not having to charge your BlackBerry, believe it or not. Um, a week of solid usage, you would not have to charge it. But, you know, there was a subsegment of people who owned Blackberries who actually really wanted a lot more from the tool and perfectly happy to charge it twice a day. And so, you know, that's a great example of positioning, market segmentation, but then also going, you know, really deep on who these people are and serving them. And that means that there are things that they may not care that much about. And that's, those are things that you don't have to deliver necessarily. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Now, when it comes to creating a category, which this may sound like a, a stupid question, how I'm going to phrase it. So when it comes to creating a category, how important is it to actually create the category term? That's something that I see a lot of founders struggle with and something that I just see a lot of companies do. And to me, it feels like, I don't know, almost like bullshit or just like inauthentic where you can tell they went through some type of exercise. They made up some term that sounds like, a Gartner term, and then that's what they're calling this new category, and that's it. Like, is that important, do you think? Like, do you have to name the category, or can you create a new category just with that strong POV, finding who those you know super users are or the underserved heroes, and then just serving them? Like, can you do that and then just worry about the name later or let someone else name it, or do you have to name it? You don't have to name it, but uh, I think if you're doing a really good job of understanding your users and customers, then it will become pretty clear. Like I'm thinking about one that my friend Goddard Abel was a great, he's a great category creator. And see if he's not been on your show, he should be. Where he created a category called CTQ, which was configure price quote, <laughs> which I think is like the dumbest name ever for a category. <laughs> it's not snappy at all. It talks about, it talks about like the features and the functions as a thing. Like what is that? But you know, they didn't make it up. This is actually what their customers said. This is what you are. You're a configure price quote thing. You're like, all right, that's what it is. Configure price quote. And so, yeah, it's not a snappy name. It's certainly not one. I love naming things. I think it's really fun. It's certainly not one that I would have ever come up with. But, you know, my opinion doesn't matter at all. Like what matters is the mental model of your customers and users and how they think. We need to understand how they think. You know, so like for I give you an interesting example, so it was actually controversial inside my own company, but you know, the additions for Influitive went while I was running it was called, we had the club edition and then we had the army edition and then the mission edition. And a number of people like, I was like, that's dumb. Like, where is this names come from? Why don't we have 
bronze, silver, gold, like everyone else. <laughs> and the, where, where, you know, where those additions actually came from was me talking to literally hundreds of these people, hundreds of customer marketers, community marketers, but talking to them and, and getting into their heads about how they thought about their customer advocates. And they thought of them like an army. They thought of raising an army of these zealot customers. And these are just the men. Actually, most of our users were women. And they still used a lot of this kind of martial terminology. And so we're like, all right, let's roll with it. You've got a club of advocates, you've got an army of advocates, and you've got a whole nation of advocates. And, and I think it was actually pretty successful. And that's, you know, again, it wasn't my idea. That's the vocabulary that they use. So I'm going to use that vocabulary in terms of, you know, I'm going to tap into that cognitive machinery that they have and leverage the models that they already use. Why would I want to go against that? Right? It's a lot easier to divert a river than it is to dig a well. So I think the smart category creator is looking for rivers to divert. Right? That's what Meta did. Right with he just took a river. Actually, he didn't really have to divert it very much. She kind of squatted on a river around customer success, as opposed to you know digging a big well. You know that said, I had a big tiff with my head of marketing at the time, was a great marketer Jim Williams, around whether it's advocate marketing or advocacy marketing, and I thought it was very important for it to be advocate marketing, even though. Gartner was calling it advocacy marketing. Advocacy marketing had a lot more Google action around it and advocate marketing very little. But I stuck to my guns on this. And the reason why was that through when talking to my users, when talking about advocate marketing, the focus really is around the advocate experience, right? The idea behind the category, the theory of the category, that is that if you take really good care of your magic geese, you will get a lot more golden eggs. So to me, advocacy marketing was all about harvesting a lot of golden eggs, which, you know, according to the fable might include killing the goose, where advocate marketing is all about taking care of the special animal who makes these golden eggs for us. And that might seem like just a slight difference, but for me, that was actually a really big difference. And it, it, it spoke to what the fundamental differentiation was around the category that it was all about taking care of these uh, special people and giving them what they needed. So yeah, I mean, the category creators that I work with, they tend to be pretty detail-oriented around this stuff. <laughs> they, they tend to think pretty deeply about, you know, what the deeper meaning is of the category. But yeah, so ultimately, if you do a good job, you'll probably name it. But you'll name it not because you're in the proverbial smoky back room with a bunch of other people from your company and maybe a, a, a high-priced consultant. It should come directly out of the mouths of your customers, especially the best ones, especially the real visionary ones. They will actually tell you what the category is if you listen carefully enough. Now, Mark, you've created multiple categories, and I know you've worked with more than 20 founders and CEOs to also help create categories. So I'm sure you've learned a lot from those interactions and have a lot of experience there. So if we had to choose you know, the top misconception that you hear from these founders and CEOs about the category creation process, what is that top misconception? Well, I think the top misconception is that, um, you know, the category needs to be named and created by, you know, analyst firms and whatnot. It really isn't true. It's actually the opposite. Analysts are led and inspired by a great category vision. 
and it's absolutely possible to get uh, you know them on board with that vision that you have and the data that supports it. And where that comes from is for actually doing the work. So most tech founders really fall in love with products. They dream about products all the time. And the approach that I espouse and the people that I work with obsess about users and they obsess about market segments and they understand them at a very deep level, at a level that most founders are just not willing to go into. So, you know, product-oriented founders are going to spend a lot of time thinking about what features they want to put in next. They're going to talk to some customers and users, but they're going to do a pretty cursory review and probably most often say, hey, what do you think of this thing? What do you think of my prototype? Isn't it great? Because they really fall in love with their own ideas. Whereas what I advise is to really think like an anthropologist, be a detective, be a scientist, and be curious and be open to different ways of thinking. And, you know, imagine yourself going to a conference as an anthropologist to talk about these special people and how they think and how wacky and weird and wonderful they are. Because that's really where I think the fundamental insight comes from, from building something great and something that will sustain you in all the tough times. You know, all the companies that I've built, there have been some times where you just wonder, what, are you, what am I doing? Right? What am I doing here? This is hard. But then you, if you go back to your foundational research that you've done, you go like, no, this is big. Okay, we need to power through this because I know that we're on to a special group of people. I know that there's going to be way more in the future. I know that they're going to have to buy products like what I'm selling. And it, it gives you the, the strength to carry on. But you know, there's a reason why most entrepreneurs fail is they're just not willing to put in this kind of work. The one thing that's really great about category creation is that I think the hit rate is actually a lot higher. It just takes a while. Okay. I have a lot of respect for guys like Eric at Zoom, who, you know, unabashedly is a category entrant, right? And he's built a, a multi-billion dollar category with a better mousetrap. And I think that's awesome. It's just not the way that I'm wired. It's funny, even my, my wife, when I, I was telling her about Influida back in the day that I wanted to build, she's like, why don't you just build another Marketo? Like, just, you know, it's so much faster. And, you know, like, well, that might be good for some people. It's just not the way that I'm wired. The, the great thing about category creation is that it's actually step-by-step. Step, and if you do the job right, you're going to end up with a valuable company. It may not be, it may not be a multi-billion dollar company. I'll give you an interesting example, actually, from a friend of mine who was a sales rep at LinkedIn, and he wasn't happy. He's like, I want to be an entrepreneur. And at the time, his wife had this tiny, tiny little business. She was a permanent makeup artist. And so these are people who like, uh, they basically tattoo women's faces. And so they don't, they don't have to put on makeup. <laughs> so they wake up in the morning and they look great. <laughs> um, and she was one of, I kid you not, a couple of hundred, a couple hundred permanent makeup artists in North America. So this is not a big segment at all. And what she discovered is that there was just nobody making products for her. And so she's like, well, I'm just going to do it myself. And so she built her own kits and then she started selling them to other permanent makeup artists. So it was a tiny little business. And so my friend's like, hey, I think you need to go help my wife for a while. And so we talked about some of these ideas around category creation. And 
I was kind of curious to see if they would work in a non-tech business. And while today that business is around 20 million in sales, they've not raised any money. Wow. Uh, they completely own the space. It's got a hilarious name. It's not, it's not a snappy name. It's actually called Tina Davies Professional Company. I'm serious. That's the name of the company. <laughs> uh, they didn't even bother to give it a snappy name. But they have courses. They have a community. They manufacture their own products. They make services. They provide everything needed for these people to be successful. And today there's more than a couple hundred of these people. There's actually a couple thousand people. But you know, with them having a large market share, they could probably sell that business for, I don't know, 70 million, 60, 70 million a day to a private equity firm and they own 100% of it. Wow. A lot better than, uh, well, certainly a lot better than what I did at Eloqua because I own seven and a half percent of Eloqua when it went public. So um, <laughs> when you own most of the business, you can do very, very well. So even if you don't hit a home run, you know, in category creation, I still think you can, you know, belt down singles and doubles, you know, relatively easily. It just takes time though. This business has taken a decade to build. So if you want to take the plunge into category creation, it's not going to happen overnight. But the good news is if you do this foundational work, you know, and you work pretty diligently, you're going to create a pretty interesting business. You know, whether you have a large market share of a small segment or you end up in a category of the marketing automation is a big, busy category and Aliqua wasn't the number one player at the end. But, you know, being a number two player is not bad in a market that's worth 20 billion. Makes a lot of sense. And that's I love these stories and that's such useful examples and so helpful, I think, for the founders listening in. Now, Mark, I know we're way over time, so we'll end here with a final question. What's next for Mark Organ? What's the next three years going to look like for you? Well, that's a great question. Well, I'm sitting here on my new farm right now, so there's going to be some ducks in my future. (laughs) That's going to be hard to figure out. Probably the biggest challenge, actually, I've had in my life is figuring out this farm because I'm totally not handy at all. But on the professional side, you know, I really love coaching and I really want to deepen my understanding of, of coaching and especially around category creation, category design. I think there's a lot of white space around category creation, growth coaching, which is my category. So that is what I'm doing is growth coaching. It's not like typical CEO coaching where it does combine a lot of the business side with the psychological side that you find in in coaching. And so I think at the nexus of category creation and growth coaching is pretty exciting place to be. And I think I've got at least another couple of years there. That said, it's now getting to the point where there's a lot of exciting opportunities out there. I'm really blown away by what I'm seeing in uh, large language model AI. And that's so exciting that I think I may have to take the plunge and build a tech company again in the next couple of years. But uh, I'm not in an immediate rush uh, right now. But I think there's another, there's at least another one of these things in me to build. So Amazing. I love it. Mark, this has been such a fun episode. I've learned so much about category creation from you, and it's so rare, I think, to find founders who have created categories, especially multiple categories. It's just a very rare thing to find, especially finding founders who are you know able to come on and talk about it and willing to come on and talk about it. So thank you so much for taking the time. Now, I'm sure all the founders listening in are going to have one big question here, and that's, you know, how do I get in touch with Mark and and how do I get him to be my coach? So for the founders listening in, where should they go and how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, so uh, if you go to CategoryNots.com, it's in my company. There's lots of, I think, useful material there, uh, content there to read. 
I'm uh, Mark at CategoryNoth.com. That's my email address. Feel free to send me an email. And, uh, you know, maybe able to answer a question you have or dilemma that you have. And uh, happy to discuss coaching. It'd be my pleasure to meet some new people doing some different things and uh, see if I can help. Amazing. Mark, thank you again. I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been such a blast and wish you the best of luck in building out this farm and hope to have you back on in a couple of years to talk about whatever new categories you've created. Sounds good. All right. Thanks a lot, Brett. Take care. Thank you.